Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And here it is, the fifth and final installment in our series on psychedelics. That's right. We and, made it to part five. Right. Part five, then we'll move on to some other topics and probably come back around to other episodes that involve psychedelics in the future uh, because there's just so much research going on. And that's ultimately what this episode is about. What What are some examples of the stuff that's going on in our century, in the 21st century, regarding psychedelics. Like with the Friday the 13th movies, part five is A New Beginning. (laughs) It is, yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's the psychedelic research revival. Uh, So, yeah, so we've been teasing this, I guess, throughout the past four episodes that at some point we're going to talk about research that's taken place on the clinical significance of psychedelics in the 21st century after some of the the veil of stigma has lifted from from psychedelic assisted therapy and psychedelic for treating uh, various conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so to quickly look at one important study, I, I think this would be a good place to start. From the early days of the 21st century psychedelic renaissance, I I just checked and this one has been cited 789 times now according to Google Scholar. Oh, wow. This is a study from Roland Griffiths, William Richards, Una McCann, and Robert Jesse. And this was published in Psychopharmacology in the year 2006 called Psilocybin Can Occasion Mystical Type Experiences Having Substantial and Sustained Personal Meaning and Spiritual Significance. And I think we will talk more about uh, spiritual significance as we go on maybe later in the episode. But uh, to to give a brief summary, basically psilocybin has been used for religious purposes for centuries. But what does it actually do? Uh, This research pursued a similar line of inquiry to the Marsh Chapel experiment from 1962, which we talked about in the third episode of the series. Right. This was dosing people with psychedelics and then letting them loose in a church, basically. Well, seminary students. <laughs> yes. So they were there, you know, to learn about the divine and to, mm-hmm. to become ministers, I guess, probably. And they were there for the Good Friday service in, in this church. And some were given psilocybin and some were given an active placebo. I think it was niacin, which mm-hmm. causes tingling and flushing. And so in in that that experiment they did find that the people who had been given the psilocybin for this religious service reported having uh, largely reported having these very profound and positive mystical experiences while on psilocybin that they believed largely changed their lives for the better. Right, not just memorable experiences, but right. life-changing experiences. And sp- believed subjectively to be spiritually significant to religious people. Right. right. Not not just a situation of where it's like, oh, yeah, I saw something or or felt something and it kind of made me think about some religious concepts I was already over, turning over in my head. You know, mm-hmm. it was a it was a, it was like an order of magnitude beyond that. Yeah. Uh, so th- this study from 2006, it was to study whether psilocybin causes people to have these same types of experiences, mystical or religious experiences that they rate as positive and profound when compared to a placebo. And this was a double blind study using high doses of psilocybin and an active placebo control. The active placebo they used in this case was not niacin. It was uh, methylphenidate hydrochloride, which stimulates the central nervous system. It's a stimulant. And I could be wrong, but I I think this one also, they, they definitely injected it, right? I think so. Because you, you do so. Well, that, actually, I'm not sure. Okay. A lot of these, a lot of these studies, they do end up injecting it just because it's fast acting and, oh. and also sometimes a little stronger. I mean, sometimes a lot stronger too, because it's just 
hitting you like that as opposed to, you know, gradually coming up. Oh, that's – yeah, that does happen in some studies. I did not note the method of okay. administration here. Uh, but so, uh, quote, volunteers completed questionnaires assessing drug effects and mystical experiences immediately after and two months after sessions. And then they also say that community observers rated changes in the volunteers' attitudes and behavior. So they didn't just ask people their own subjective impressions of how they've changed. They also asked other people, hey, how has Jeffrey changed? Right. So it's not just Scrooge saying, oh, yeah, I'm totally cool with Cratchit now. Like you're actually <laughs> asking Cratchit, hey, what do you think right. about Scrooge? And it's like, oh, yeah, he's totally different now. I don't know. He must have uh, – he took something Christmas Eve. Uh-huh. <laughs> Didn't you write something once about how Scrooge was on DMT? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I can't be – I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person to make this commentary. But I feel like um, a, a, a Christmas Carol, uh, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, is like such a psychedelic experience. Like clearly oh, yeah. he had – I mean he has a supernatural experience that makes him reassess his life and his life choices and ultimately changes his trajectory. And uh, I think it has a tremendous amount of, of, in common with some of the psychedelic experiences we've been discussing. Yeah, I think I think that's about right. Yeah, it was that bad potato that he ate, right? <laughs> no, what he says, it was like a bit of cheese or meat right. that had gone off. Yeah. Okay, so results of this experiment, the uh, the the update sort of on the Marsh Chapel model. The uh, the authors write, quote, psilocybin produced a range of acute perceptual changes subjective experiences, and labile moods, including anxiety. Psilocybin also increased measures of mystical experience. At two months, the volunteers rated the psilocybin experience as having substantial personal meaning and spiritual significance and attributed to the experience sustained positive changes in attitudes and behavior consistent with changes rated by community observers. Uh, so the authors write that the, that the life changes experienced by people who took psilocybin in this uh, study are similar to the changes reported by people who have spontaneous mystical experiences without drugs that change their lives. Quote, the ability to occasion such experiences prospectively will allow rigorous scientific investigations of their causes and consequences. And this kind of comes back to William James' territory here, mm-hmm. right? Because – this is not just a study about psilocybin. It's not just, well, what can psilocybin do? It sort of opens a doorway of generally studying the religious brain to studying what's happening in our brains when we have a, a self-described mystical experience and how do these experiences work to change behavior as they often do. But again, this is a different sort of experiment than a lot of the other stuff we've been hinting at because – It's the kind of subjective, positive experience we've heard reported anecdotally so many times before. People have an encounter with something, something profound and ineffable that that is a is a meaningful emotional experience for them, causes them to reflect on their life in ways that might change their behavior and their habits. Um, but what about the the more clinical, more clinically significant uses like uh, modern research using psychedelics to treat psychiatric disorders, addiction, and other issues? Yeah, and, and this is where we're seeing just a lot of, uh, you know, tremendous research taking place. Yeah. Uh, and um, we're still, I think, on the, on the cusp of it. Like yeah. we're still in the early days, but. Uh, exactly, yeah. But, but we, yeah, we are seeing a lot of progress and a lot of promising uh, promising results. Uh, one of the the key figures in the modern research of psychedelic addiction research is a man by the name of Dr. Stephen Ross, 
of the NYU psilocybin cancer anxiety study. We, we mentioned him in a previous episode already. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pollen, Michael Pollan discusses his work at length in his book. And uh, as I mentioned already, he was one of the panelists at the 2019 World Science Festival, uh, which I was in attendance for. Uh, and uh, this talk, by the way, from the World Science Festival should be available online at some point um, in the months ahead. Uh, I'm not sure when, but when it goes up, I'll make sure I share it on our social so people can view it. Okay. Because uh, it was a great talk. Uh, it covers some of what we're talking about here and have been talking about, but gets into other areas as well. Um, so uh, Dr. Stephen Ross discussed how psychedelics were not a part of his training in psychiatry and the study of addiction. Um, and, and like when you when you see pictures of him or you see him in person, um, you know, he, he doesn't fit. You don't look at him and say like, oh, well, there's a psilocybin researcher. Right. <laughs> he doesn't look like Willie Nelson. Or right. Something. <laughs> he doesn't look like Terrence McKenna or Timothy Leary. He looks just like a, like a just an everyday human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're said, if you're told that, that he's a, you know, a professional or an academic, you know, you wouldn't instantly think psilocybin. Uh, but anyway, he, he discussed, discussed that, you know, this wasn't part of his training, despite the, the fact that psych- psychedelics were such a huge part of psychology for a while. Yeah. And, uh, he says that all of the research findings from the fifties and sixties were still out there, quote, hiding in plain sight. And, and when he, you know, he looked closer, he saw, you know, you had this high success rate um, using, uh, you know, mainly it was like LSD with alcohol addiction is the one that I think really caught his, uh, his attention. But, uh, but yeah, we had, these, we had these really promising results from the original period of modern psychedelic research. And so he, he thought, well, let's, let's try it again. Let's see what else we can learn. How can we, we actually move on from what they uh, had learned decades ago? Uh-huh. Uh, the only problem is that there were, of course, huge administrative hurdles to studying it. But he was able to push through with an initial focus on terminal cancer patient studies, alleviating end-of-life anxiety via psilocybin. Yeah, and this is a big, important early thing, I think also from the mid-2000s, right? Yes, yeah. His initial work, though, actually took place at the NYU Dental School because Bellevue and the NYU Cancer Center wanted to to stay stay clear of it because it was, you know, still, it was early days getting back into and igniting what would become this uh, renaissance of research. So there was still, even in the scientific and medical community, something of a stigma around psychedelics, even for clinical uses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, you know, even today, like in the culture at large, I feel like there's still, you still have to push through that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like you still have to, you know, get to the point where you're not using the, the phrase magic mushrooms in the science headline, right? Right. Uh, and we're not there yet. I mean, yeah. it's still the the popular press reporting about it, it, it plays up the kind of, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, uh, hey, are you having depression symptoms? Maybe you should try dropping acid. A new study says. Yeah. And, and it's understandable that that would be the reaction for so many of us because, again, we're coming on the heels of, uh, um, of the, the moral panic and uh, so many of these, uh, uh, these ideas about what uh, LSD and psilocybin are. But th- that's another attitude, actually, that we were just hinting at that's not even – it's not even the same as the moral panic that mm-hmm. looks at uh, psychedelics as this sort of culture-destroying threat, you know, that's going to turn your children into axe murderers. It's more the kind of the trivialization right. of the psychedelic experience that looks at it not necessarily as this horrible, threatening thing, but as this like, ho, 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 you know, oh, here's the stoner coming to take the psychedelics. Yeah, which it's kind of twofold, right? On one hand, like maybe that's a necessary part of of its 
transformation, and uh, and maybe that's one way it survives mm-hmm. uh, through the through the, the, the decades of uh, of darkness there. Uh, but on the other hand, it does it it hurts the the potential of it, right? Because it creates this idea that it is purely recreational, mm-hmm. that it's pure uh, hallucination and fireworks, and just and there's nothing of value there. Yeah, and certainly not uh, not medically valuable. Right. Or I mean, even within the recreational use, what a lot of these enthusiasts have been emphasizing is like spiritual significance, yeah. ability to change habits and and have profound emotional experiences, not like the frivolous, trivial party drug kind of approach. Right. So Ross's studies ended up using psilocybin rather than LSD. Uh, LSD had been the primary substance in uh, you know previous trials, uh, but psilocybin made more sense for a number of reasons. So it's it's less stigmatized, has less political baggage. It's easier to obtain. It's gentler. And it also doesn't last longer than a researcher's work day. Uh, I think that's that's something that's worth driving home in a lot of this. You know, the, the LSD yeah. trip just takes up so much more time and people need to get home. Right. Uh, a number of studies, though, have, have looked at this, have examined uh, end-of-life anxiety and cancer depression and to what extent uh, psilocybin could alleviate this condition. And there there have been some, we've been seeing some rapid success. Yeah, you can imagine why this is fruitful just given people's subjective experiences, what they report about uh, high doses of psilocybin and LSD trips. Uh, a common thing is reduced fear of death afterwards. Right. Uh, the, the, like, again, this is just anecdotal, but a thing people often say is like, I went through ego dissolution. You know, I, I I went to this place where I was having experience, but there was no me anymore. There was no self. And people often talk of this in terms of some analogy of death. You know, it's like right. ego death or something like I felt what it would be like to die or to to have me not exist anymore. And I didn't mind. It didn't feel bad. In a way, it actually felt peaceful and good. Right. And I mean, it, obviously, it also sounds, I'm sure, counterintuitive to a lot of people because you, yeah. you might you might think, well, if I'm if I'm on my deathbed or I'm you know I'm facing a terminal illness or whatever the you know particular situation is, like this sounds like a horrible time to take a mind altering drug. But I think you know, based on what we've been discussing on the show, I think there's strong evidence for the, the counter argument. Like, no, this is the time to take yeah. a mind-altering drug. That, especially because it seems like it might have this ability to reduce death anxiety, to reduce the sensation that the fact that you will die is a horrible thing. Right. So effectiveness uh, with psilocybin in these uh, situations is something like 80% with a placebo at like 20%. And again, we're not just talking about psilocybin itself, but rather the, you know, the result of a lot of set and setting, um, priming the individual for the experience, having the experience, uh, the, the mind-altering experience, you know, guiding them through it, helping them then to consolidate it all on the other side. And again, it's not the substance itself, but the state of mind that the substance creates uh, that seems to be uh, useful for psychiatric improvement. Yeah, the the experience, not just the compound acting within the body. Right. It's not take two of these and call me in the morning. It's take two of these, um, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to be there while it happens, and then we're going to spend time unpacking it afterwards. Yeah. Now, uh, it also gets into, the research also gets into other areas, though. So it gets into just treat, looking at possible treatments for depression, and Ross says that the work is promising there, but thus far the work hasn't been too broad. Mm-hmm. And on the addiction front, researchers are making headway to treat addiction issues with uh, not only alcohol, but also tobacco, opiates, uh, crack cocaine, and other substances. Mm-hmm. 
But in all of this, Ross stresses that, as is often the case in any of these studies, more research is required. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even he admits that in some cases the findings are almost too good to be true. Yeah, uh, we just have to we have to keep going. Like you know, there's no point where you're just like, all right, that's it. Psychedelics are are good across the board. Uh -huh. uh, let's just let's uh, just uh, you know uh, prescribe them in every instance. Well, I mean, I do think that there are. There, we're tending toward a future where we're going to have more confidence in the results than we have now. There are a lot of promising right. basically pilot studies. In fact, I think maybe it would be good to just talk through a few examples of recent studies. Uh, but maybe we should do that after we come back from a break. All right, we're back. All right, so I thought it would be good to just look at a few examples of what these pilot studies on psychedelic uh, clinical use of psychedelics in recent years has been. And a, a good place to turn here is a pretty recent meta-analysis of clinical research on psychedelics by Albert Garcia-Ramieux, Brennan Kersgaard, and Peter Addy. Uh, this was in uh, Experimental and Clinical Psychopharmacology in 2016 called Clinical Applications of Hallucinogens. And so th this is like a, a meta-review of all the existing research out there right now. And they've got a great just table in this uh, paper that summarizes findings from a bunch of existing clinical research up to the year 2016. And so I thought we could get, just go through here and cite some examples from the categories of treatment you were talking about a little while ago. And so one thing is a couple of studies that looked at the treatment of alcoholism. One is Bogenschutz et al. from 2015, and this tested psilocybin-enhanced therapy, therapy sessions. Specifically, it was a type of therapy I had not heard of, I think, called motivational enhancement therapy. Robert, are you familiar with that? Uh, no, I don't believe I am. Yeah, uh, but it's some kind of therapy. Uh, and so like many of the other studies, this is not just looking at taking a drug in isolation, but taking the psychedelic in concert with some kind of therapy or, or, or session with a counselor or therapist. I believe uh, Michael Pollan uh, pointed out there, there tend to be a pair of therapists. You tend to have like a male uh, a therapist and a female therapist. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. In, uh, in most of these studies, yeah. yeah interesting. Um, so uh, this is uh, this was to treat alcohol dependence in this 2015 study, and they found quote significant reduction in self-reported drinking days and heavy drinking days for 32 weeks after psilocybin administration compared to baseline. Hmm. Another study by Krebs and Johansson in 2012 was a meta-analysis of uh, previous research on LSD-assisted therapy or counseling, and it found uh, across a total sample size of more than 500 participants that a single dose of LSD, which was uh, 200 to 800 micrograms, paired with alcoholism treatment found, uh, quote, that that therapy produced significantly reduced reports of alcohol misuse at follow-up compared to a control group receiving treatments without the psychedelics. So, so it really – there are several studies now showing that it really does seem to be working with alcoholics. There are also a number of studies, as you mentioned, about depression. Uh, for example, Carhart-Harris et al. in 2016 tested psilocybin, quote, in a supportive setting on patients with treatment-resistant unipolar major depression, and it found significant reductions in self-reported depressive symptoms from one week to three months after treatment. According to one scoring method for depression symptoms, 8 of 12 participants showed complete remission of depression symptoms after one week, and 5 of 12 showed complete remission after three months. And these results are 20 for 25 milligrams of psilocybin. Um, so I think that's interesting because one thing it shows there is something that I think has showed up in a few other studies is that, again, 
while these compounds appear very promising, they're not a cure-all and they don't appear to last forever. It appears mm -hmm. like they do have an effect. Uh, the effect uh, seems to be very positive, but the effect fades over time. And this might be a thing where some applications of psychedelics in the clinical setting may be something that is a, a like a type of therapy that you would repeat at intervals over time, the same way that you would repeatedly visit a therapist for psychotherapy sessions. Right, or, or certainly the same way that in a lot of these traditional so uh, societies, one would um, would continually go to the shaman or would mm -hmm. partake of uh, psychedelic substance as a part of a, a, a regularly occurring religious observance. Another study on depression was uh, Osorio et al. in 2015. They tested ayahuasca for <laughs> recurrent major depressive disorder. Uh, this, like some of the others, was open label, so not placebo controlled. A test group of six, so like many of these small groups, but found significant reductions in reports of depressive sy symptoms after one, seven, and 21 days. Um, and, and Michael Pollan has an interesting section in his book, How to Change Your Mind, about treating depression with psychedelics in which he talks to the psychologist Rosalind Watts, who uh, she, she – so she talks about these master themes discovered in studies about what's going on with depression. And I just wanted to read a, a couple of sections from Pollan's book that I thought were interesting uh, concerning these, these master themes. Quote, the first was that volunteers depicted their depression foremost as a state of disconnection, whether from other people, from their earlier selves, their senses and feelings, their core beliefs and spiritual values, or nature. Several referred to living in a mental prison, others to being stuck in endless circles of rumination they likened to mental gridlock. I was reminded of Carhart Harris's hypothesis that depression might be a result of an overactive default mode network, the site in the brain where rumination appears to take place. Hmm. And so, of course, you know, what might be going on there is that we, we've talked about psychedelics as having at least metaphorically being these boundary dissolvers mm -hmm. that they, you know, seem a, a kind of ultimate remedy for symptoms related to disconnection, that they uh, encourage the sensation of being connected to other and all things and to other people and to the environment and all these things that people feel disconnected or cut off from. Uh, and then go, going to uh, the, the second master theme that Rosalind Watts explains to Pollen, quote, the second master theme was a new access to difficult emotions, emotions that depression often blunts or closes down completely. Watts hypothesizes that the depressed patient's incessant rumination constricts his or her emotional repertoire. In, in other cases, the depressive keeps emotions at bay because it's too painful to experience them. Uh, so like often I think, a layperson's understanding of depression might be uh, like that you feel intense sadness, mm -hmm. you know, like this this really intense single emotion, which is not exactly what depression seems to be. Right. Like, I mean, I always come back to um, was it um, was it C.S. Lewis that referred to depression as the black dog? Like this this kind of thing that would come and like just weigh him down. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I always come back to those kind of descriptions because those feel more accurate. When, when you, you're experiencing depression or when you're encountering someone with depression, it's not just like uncontrolled weeping. Right. You know, it is, uh, it is more in line with this disconnection we're talking about, this feeling of being trapped 
within something or within yourself. In some ways, I think it can be thought of as sort of like a hyper-demotivated state. Yeah. Where it can just be difficult to do anything or to feel anything. Yeah. And I, and I, I guess hopefully, hopefully more people are aware of that now. I feel like the, the messaging about what depression is mm-hmm. is, uh, is better uh, today uh, than it was like when, when – when I was, uh, you know, a kid or when I was in high school, you know. Yeah. I don't think we had a good idea of it. I think you had, like, occasionally there'd be, like, a Newsweek article about it. Uh, but it wasn't really something that was particularly discussed in school, as I recall. Uh-huh. Yeah, that does seem like something that's very important, like helping people understand what depression is and, yeah. like, being able to recognize the symptoms uh, so that it can be diagnosed rather than, you know, people just thinking, like, what's wrong with me? Right. Now, to come back to a couple of other areas uh, mentioned in this meta-analysis of of recent research on the clinical use of psychedelics, one is studying obsessive-compulsive disorder. So Moreno et al. in 2016 did a double-blind experiment with psilocybin to treat obsessive-compulsive disorder, and they found, quote, marked reductions on Yale-Brown obsessive-compulsive scale, which is a scoring scale for for those symptoms, for all participants during one or more psilocybin sessions. And these effects lasted uh, for at least 24 hours, though they're not sure how long after that. Uh, obviously, I think uh, it would be less useful in a clinical setting for if it only treated something while you were on the drug, right? <laughs> it, it's more important to look at like these kinds of lasting changes that come about from an experience, but we don't know how long the changes might be operant on obsessive compulsive here. Uh, and then another thing is tobacco dependence. I guess that goes in a similar category to alcohol dependence. But Johnson et al. in 2014 tested psilocybin paired with cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. And they found, quote, biologically verified smoking abstinence in 80 percent of volunteers at a six-month follow-up as assessed by exhaled breath carbon monoxide and urine cotinine levels. I'm not sure what cotinine is. It's probably some downstream thing of nicotine. But yeah. The authors here also listed a couple more studies showing that both psilocybin and LSD-assisted psychotherapy were linked with decreased anxiety and depression symptoms in people who were facing life-threatening illnesses and cancer. Uh, but we, we should, I think, acknowledge, as we've mentioned several times, that we're still in the early stages of this psychedelic research renaissance because a lot of these studies have small samples. Right. A lot of them are small s- samples. A lot of them are uh, like open labels. So they're not placebo controlled. People know what they're getting. Uh, and, you know, they're not necessarily randomized controlled and all that. So I think the future looks bright. But as you were saying a little while ago, to invoke this much-hated scientific cliche, much, re- uh, much more research is needed. And specifically, it's more rigorous and larger, more statistically powerful research is needed. I can only imagine, too, that rescheduling these substances would also help broaden some of these studies. Uh, oh, hugely, you know, yeah. I mean, it's you're talking about small study sizes, but with a Schedule One narcotic uh, that has uh, that has had you know a lot of taboos associated with it, even for uh, clinical and research purposes. Yeah, exactly. And so to sum up, I think, where where we stand, I want to quote from the discussion section of that uh, that meta meta analysis by Garcia Ramu et al. 
Quote, the psychedelics, including LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, and the DMT-containing admixture ayahuasca, have shown promise in treating a range of psychological disorders for which currently available treatments are often insufficient, such as mood, substance use, and anxiety disorders. These studies have mostly been conducted in small, relatively homogeneous samples, limiting the generalizability of their findings. However, safety and feasibility of psychedelic-facilitated treatment models have been established by these initial studies, paving the way for further investigation in larger, more diverse samples using randomized controlled designs. So essentially, these small studies up front have been very important in establishing protocols, uh, demonstrating legitimacy and safety of these methods of, of research. And we're, we're sort of on the way now to, to look and see what the results are once we try this with lots more people and more settings and, and more rigorous methods. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to get more into the, you know, some of the possible future uh, scenarios for psychedelic use. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to kind of take this in both the uh, uh, grand direction and a very um, mundane direction. We're going to look at uh, uh, psychedelics as a, as a radio for speaking to God. And also, uh, we're going to look at microdosing. Okay. All right, we're back. So uh, we've talked a, a little bit about um, about the religious experience and psychedelics already. Sure, the the Marsh Chapel experiments of 1962 uh, with psilocybin on on seminary students in, in a Good Friday service, uh, and then the follow up study, the 2006 study by Griffiths et al. They looked at mystical or religious experiences people had on psilocybin and found that people did view these as profound, significant experiences and that they were positive. Yeah, and we, we see all these different examples of, of uh, this kind of thinking, uh, this kind of interpretation of, uh, of uh, psychedelic experiences that uh, people have had. Uh, you know, Terrence McKenna, who we talked about uh, in some of the earlier episodes, you know, certainly he got into some of these more elaborate ideas of, say, like the machine elves. But right. in, in Food <laughs> of the Gods, he discusses this, this idea of the possibility of the holy other. Mm. And uh, we see that in other people's writings as well. Uh, Huxley wrote of the mind at large. Uh, and then we even have these various, uh, you know, other religious encounters to consider, things that are maybe seemingly like a little less grandiose in terms of just, uh, you know, uh, how the, uh, the the writer is using them. Uh, one of these examples being uh, cancer patient uh, Dinah Baser, uh, who uh, describes feeling, quote, bathed in God's love during her experience uh, as part of a 2010 NYU cancer anxiety study. Uh, by the way, she also made an appearance at that World Science Festival talk. She was uh, in the audience. This is a really interesting point because actually Pollen interviews Baser for his book mm -hmm. in How to Change Your Mind and mentions this experience. Interestingly, at least to me, he points out that despite her belief that she was bathed in God's love, that's a quote, Baser does not believe a God exists. So to quote from Pollen, quote, during the climax of a journey that extinguished her fear of death, Baser described being bathed in God's love, and yet she emerged with her atheism intact. And he wonders how it's possible, like, to hold these contradictory ideas at the same time. Eventually, he writes, quote, Not only was the flood of love she experienced ineffably powerful, but it was unattributable to any individual or worldly cause, and so was purely gratuitous, a form of grace. So how to convey the magnitude of such a gift? God might be the only word in the language big enough. 
and I think that's really interesting. It's like we don't have the language to describe these experiences without keying on other signs pointing to the unsayable and the indescribable. And religious words are the words that seem to fit that best and fall most within reach. Even if we don't, I mean, some people do mean them exactly in their traditional sense, but a lot of people on psychedelics use these words without meaning them in their traditional sense, but still because they're the only word they can find to suggest what they felt. Yeah. Now, now they had, just to critique uh, Paula in a little bit, I, I mean, I would argue that uh, most of us have uh, contradictory ideas in our head. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think there are a lot of us that both believe and don't believe in a God or some sort of spiritual model. Sure. Uh, we probably have multiple uh, spiritual models regarding some, uh, you know, vague aspect of the metaphysical realm floating around our head mm-hmm. right alongside like a, a very uh, you know, like stern scientific interpretation as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but that's, that's uh, kind of beside the point. But, uh, but, but I, I, I do think that I, I do think his interpretation is really interesting here. And I think uh, that, that, that Bazer's uh, story is uh, is interesting. You know, we we often encounter this idea of glimpsing God, or if not a god or a deity or a goddess or something, glimpsing what is often referred to as the ultimate reality. Yeah. Um, which uh, which of course this gets into you know this is not new to the psychedelic realm. Like this is uh, something as there's uh, a very old uh, consideration in Hinduism mm-hmm. as well. The idea of like seeing through the veil of illusion and like seeing the world as it really is. Mm-hmm. And so one doesn't have to take a psychedelic in order to have this experience, uh, but it certainly seems to be one of the pathways to, to, to having it. Uh, so uh, we, there's actually another uh, Roland Griffiths study that comes out. Yeah. Uh, it comes up, and this is one. This one is actually is from this year, from 2019. This is from Johns Hopkins, and it was published in POS One, and it looked at data from 4,285 people worldwide who responded to online advertisements to complete one of two 50-minute online surveys about God encounter experiences. Oh, boy. And it particularly asked about encounters with uh, the ultimate reality or God or divine beings, you know, like angels, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Of those uh, 4,285 individuals, 1,184 attributed their experiences to psilocybin. Hmm. 1,251 said they took LSD, 435 uh, said they took ayahuasca, 606 said they took DMT. In total, 3,476 individuals responded to the psychedelic survey uh, part of the study. Mm -hmm. And then 809 responded to the non-drug survey, uh, you know, zeroing in on people who are uh, claiming to have had some sort of uh, divine experience encounter without the aid of a, of a psychedelic. Uh-huh. Uh, but it is interesting to look at the numbers, the way they, they fall out here, because in both studies, 75% of people said it was among the most meaningful events of their lives, uh-huh. which I guess shouldn't be that surprising. If you encounter something that you perceive as being the ultimate reality uh-huh. or a god or an angel or what have you, uh-huh. uh, like it, it it better be memorable, right? Yeah, I met God, but it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, you don't want to be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I met God. Uh, I don't know why that hadn't come up before. Oh, yeah, I, I saw an angel. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Frank, God was kind of boring. <laughs> but then there are also these differing factors too. Like, So 70% said that there was communication involved. So not mm-hmm. only do they behold 
the divine or behold the objective reality, they also had some sort of communication with it. 75% reported uh, there being this, this air of benevolence to it. 80% reported uh, a sense of intelligence. Uh, 75% re- reported sacredness and 70% uh, described an eternal nature to it. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, like this is something that has always been and always will be. Now, obviously, these are just – these are subjectively applied labels. It's right. the, the sense to which people thought these words applied to their experience. But we still learn something from asking people these kind of questions. Yeah. Uh, to keep going here, 70 percent reported a decreased fear of death in the psychedelic group, 57 percent in the non-drug group. Interesting. In both groups, 15% said that it was the most uh, psychologically challenging experience of their life. Uh, 55% of the psychedelic group described it as the ultimate reality. 59% of the non-drug group described an encounter with a god or an angelic being. So I think that's interesting. I'll come back to that. The the people that uh, had a psychedelic experience, they tended to – they were more likely to describe it as just a – like they saw through the veil. They saw the universe or the the world as it really is, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas the non-drug group were more inclined to encounter a being. Hmm. Now, Griffith says that there's a lot more to explore here. You know, he's he's not drawing any ultimate conclusions uh, from any of this. Uh, but, you know, it, it, some of the things to, to tease out might be like, you know, what factors may predis- predispose one to have these interpretations? Mm-hmm. Like, um, like I wonder, for example, if the tendency uh, to interpret it as the ultimate reality over a god-goddess angel encounter in the psychedelic experience has more to do with the religious ideals of the individual. You know, like here's somebody that uh, they took LSD or took psilocybin, so maybe they weren't like super religious. Mm-hmm. Or if it has something to do maybe with the, you know, the dissolution of boundaries, uh, yeah. and, uh, the, you know, the pressing down of the ego, the, 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 the turning off of the default mode network for a little bit. So right. maybe you're, you're less inclined for this experience to be boiled into this egoic entity mm-hmm. and you're more likely to have this broader dissolved experience but then at the same time i mean you know mckenna and others have talked about encountering an other uh while you know having a you know a rather intense trip so uh, and i guess it basically comes down to I, there are multiple factors involved here and it will be interesting to see how how future studies might tease that out and mm-hmm. determine like you know what what is impacting this scenario versus the other and ultimately like you know what is the uh, you know how each can be beneficial yeah the the psychedelic experience or the like purely non-drug religious experience well when you encounter some kind of reality beyond that with which you were familiar yeah what what tends to be correlated with people believing that there is a, a an entity there like a an a person or a mind or something versus just some kind of plane of existence or or you know state of truth or I mean you sound kind of silly when you start trying to put it into words yet again right but I mean uh, it, it is worth pointing out that um, you're still looking at uh, you know seventy percent in both studies saying that there was communication yeah so it's it's like something is communicating with like there's some sort of communication, but maybe it's you know it's uh, it's less directed, it's less tied to an individual. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was a you know it was a, a, an interesting study to look at. And again, this was um, this was Roland Griffiths, who we talked about earlier in yeah. that uh, that earlier religious uh, study, the one from 2006. Yeah. Yes. So that's one sort of grandiose way of looking at the future of psychedelics and psychedelic research, right? Figuring out. 
uh, how we interpret the divine and how they could even be uh, psychedelics can be used as part of some sort of religious experience, like not only uh, you know the the traditional religious experiences, but maybe some sort of new religious experience. Well, yeah, I'm curious to see how the idea of uh, psychedelically prompted religious experience squares with traditional beliefs and dogmas, mm -hmm. because there are very different attitudes that people can come at this with. I mean, some people, I think, some people look at the psychedelic experience and say, ah, it's proof of God, you know, yep. because all these people take these compounds, have experiences of meeting another higher power or something like that. It's got, you know, the consistency of these reports indicates there's got to be a real being up there that, that people are encountering. And then people come at it from completely the opposite way and say, look, if, you know, if people are taking drugs that are causing them to have these experiences, that would tend to show that the experience is something going on in the brain and not like an actual spiritual being or entity up there that, that's doing something, right? Yeah. Like why would that entity only be communicating with people or primarily communicating with people who have taken a certain compound into their brains? And it's interesting that this exact same reality causes completely opposite reactions – yeah, yeah, that it, it, to one person it is, uh, uh, you know, uh, faith in God restored and the other it, it may be a, a sign that, uh, that there was nothing there to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how, uh, uh, see what kind of light future research sheds on this issue. Well, though, I, I also want to make clear that at least from my perspective, I mean, I don't think that even if you don't think that there are actual other entities out there that people are encountering on these drugs – that doesn't mean that the mystical experience is not fascinating and useful and revealing. Oh, yeah. If we are encountering other entities, even if they're not like ghosts or some kind of being that acts, you know, uh, outside of our control, we are encountering something inside our mind that is a latent potential there. Yeah. And if you're communicating with that, even if you're just communicating with yourself, well, uh, there, there could be something of value there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of like the grandiose uh, view into the future, you know, communicating with, with God, envisioning God and communicating with the self, uh, et cetera. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, Silicon Valley bros uh, microdosing. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, <laughs> I don't want to be too judgmental, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, obviously, like the intended um, goal with microdosing is not to – uh, justify the ways of gods to to man, but to rather uh, like be a little better at your job, right? Yeah. More creative in your job. So we touched on this in the last episode of, or well, I guess the uh, the episode prior to the last episode, uh, <laughs> and uh, and I wondered if any research had looked at whether Silicon Valley types would actually benefit from microdosing to enhance creativity or novel thinking. Microdosing, by the way, the idea is generally. There's no like, you know, definite definition, but generally it's taking one-tenth of a tripping dose mm -hmm. of a psychedelic. So you're not having a, you know, a perceptually altered experience or not in any significant way. It's more just kind of like thinking this kind of loosens the mind a little bit. Right, yeah. Just kind of like not shaking the snow globe of the brain all the way up, but just kind of like giving it a little shuffle and uh -huh. then like doing an eight-hour workday. Uh-huh. So anecdotal evidence would indicate that it elevates mood and mental acuity, but then ultimately, what, what do we have in terms of studies? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have much, but uh, there, was, there, there was actually a study that came out this year that looked into this a bit, um, looking at microdosing in rats. Uh, it was a University of California Davis study headed up by Dr. David Olson, 
and they microdosed rats with DMT. Oh. So they gave them one-tenth of the estimated hallucinogenic uh, dose in rats. So that's one milligram per kilogram of body weight every third day for two months. And this is, uh, you know, again, more or less standard, one-tenth of a tripping dose. They treated them uh, for two weeks and then began studying mood, anxiety, and cognitive function over a two-day period. And these were uh, the basic results. An improved ability to overcome fear, uh, antidepressant effects associated with reduced immobility, and no obvious impairments or improvements in cognitive function or sociability. Hmm. Then the, but the, there were also some potential downsides. They observed significantly increased body weight in male rats and neuronal atrophy in female rats. Huh. This despite the fact that a previous study from Olson and company had shown that a single high dose of DMT, and I should know, a single high dose of DMT showed increased ne- neuronal growth. So, again, this is a, one of those studies that is not, uh, is just the beginning of a story rather than uh, anything like an end to it. Mm-hmm. More study is needed, but it ultimately shows that there may be some quantitative benefits to microdosing, but there also may be some key risks. And Olson says that, that likely dose, frequency, and length of time are going to be key here to whether we're talking about a therapeutic dose or a potentially harmful effect. Yeah. And, of course, as always, you know, rats are not humans. And yeah, Our exactly. brains are working very differently. But, yeah, this is an interesting indication of what might be going on. I'm especially interested in in the idea of uh, overcoming fear and to what extent, if that's an analogy for what's going on with microdosing in human brains, uh, if – I don't know. There, it could be that there's some kind of like positive disinhibition quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean this is something I think uh, – people have thought about alcohol before, you know, that like sometimes people drink alcohol at parties because it makes them more sociable. You know, you feel disinhibited. A lot of the kind of like fear that would keep you inside your shell goes away. But then, of course, there are tons of negative effects that come with alcohol, you know, that that also like it might make you less inhibited and and better at uh, socializing with people you don't know very well, but also makes you stupider or something. (laughs) Just like you're not at your peak in every possible way. And I would be interested to see if there are ways in which small doses of psychedelics could be relevantly disinhibiting without having some of the negative effects that come with other disinhibitory drugs like alcohol. Now, obviously, there's a great deal to focus on in this episode about, uh, you know, clinical research, and and it is essential. But, you know, I don't think it's our only means of looking at psychedelics. Um, mm-hmm. Michael Pollan and others, they point out that, that psilocybin is not marijuana, and we can't really look to a you know one to one comparison on how decriminalization or legalization will or even should proceed mm-hmm. in regard to psilocybin, uh, for example. Uh, but but another you know I think important note here is that even if we're not seeing if, even if we were not seeing all of these potential benefits for therapy, um, are there enough negatives in place to rationalize? the continued illegal status of psychedelic substances. I mean, I would think about it more from the other direction. I'm like, well, are those negative effects enough that it should be illegal and punished by police officers and the law enforcement community and the justice system for people to just have some? 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me more like the reasoning should be that there should be a really good reason to make things illegal, not right. there should be a good reason to make them not illegal. Yeah. And I mean, especially, I mean, we were talking about plants too and yeah. fungi and, you know, to what extent should we outlaw fungus uh, or, you know, or multiple species of fungus, you know, and especially if we're, we're talking about like all the other things that happen when you outlaw a substance, you, you know, you, you take these and you, these, these things and you leave their traffic, their trade and their culture to fringe underground and criminal elements, um, you know, because one of the issues with a lot of illicit drugs is that by making them illicit, we limit our ability to regulate them, to effectively educate people about them and to help people when they encounter problems, be that problem a challenging trip or something like, um, you know, uh, uh, addiction to a su substance like cocaine. Mm -hmm. I was actually looking at a, a study recently looking at uh, legalization of marijuana uh, and in uh, in in the, uh, the the areas they were looking at, how it um, it lessened uh, cases of underage use, hmm. just because since it was available legally, but it was regulated, um, there were fewer people below the appropriate age acquiring the substance. That's interesting. So uh, you know, the, easily we could do you could do a whole episode, uh, multiple episodes, just talking about all these issues and drug legalization and regulation. What should be what should be illegal and what shouldn't be illegal? Not only in terms of substances, but pretty much anything within a given society. Uh, but um, I mean, hopefully, in these episodes, we've given everybody some food some food for thought uh, some on that food topic. of the gods some for food thought. of the gods for thought on that topic <laughs> uh, and in general hopefully you know we've provided everyone with a bit more information about the history nature and reality of psychedelics so that you can make up your own minds about it uh, or even change your mind if you so wish all right, so there you have it, psychedelics. Uh, it only took us five episodes, but here we are uh, and I feel, at the end. I feel frustrated because we still, uh, I, like, there's so much stuff we wanted to get to that we never did. I, I just remembered we were going to come back to the stuff about adult personality change through psychedelics uh. that... Uh, maybe we can explore that in a future episode. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. This is one of those rich topics where, you you know, the more you look into it, the more stuff you bring up, the more you realize you're missing out and not even exploring. So uh, if, if we didn't talk about your favorite subtopic or issue in psychedelics, sorry, we, we just didn't get to it. Right. So we would obviously love to hear from anybody. So if there's, if there's a particular part of this five-part journey that you would love to hear a future episode on, you want a deeper dive, you want us to come back to it, let us know about that. Uh, if you have general thoughts, uh, write into us. Also, if you have, you know, particulars about your own experiences with any of these uh, substances or even with just, uh, uh, you know, hallucinatory experiences that are not tied to psychedelic use, uh, feel free to share those with us. And if you want to remain anonymous uh, on a future listener mail episode, uh, you can make a note of that as well, and we will definitely honor that. Uh, in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the show. If you want to support our little show here, the best thing you can do is to rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, and make sure that you have subscribed. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.